0: This is the Monday, October 5th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning.
1: Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
0: How I miss
1: those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
2: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, also carried on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spreaker or your favorite podcasting outlet. On today's episode, we visit the theaters, throne rooms, and taverns of London 400 years ago, as seen through the eyes of the immortal bard, William Shakespeare. And gosh, if you have a book show, you really want to say immortal bard as many times as you can, don't you? Well, today we're going to get to say it a whole lot, because our guide to Jacobian London is renowned Shakespeare scholar James Shapiro, professor of English at New York City's Columbia University. His book is The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606. That year might not mean much to us today, but it should. It was a particularly chaotic one in England's history with King James's ascension to the throne and the foiling of the notorious gunpowder plot. Remember, remember the 5th of November? An outbreak of the plague also occurred that year and there was a general sense of anxiety and uneasiness that gripped the nation. Change and disaster and disease, as we know in our own time, is often unsettling. This malaise and sense of crisis helped inspire and rejuvenate William Shakespeare. In 1606, he seemed to be in the twilight of his playwright career when the year began, but we now know that he went on to produce three of his greatest tragedies that year. King Lear, Macbeth, Antony, and Cleopatra. Perhaps no other stretch in Shakespeare's prolific career directly reflects his mood as well as that of the nation where I live, as this incredible year of 1606. And there is no better time-traveling companion for this journey than James Shapiro. In addition to writing books on the Bard, like The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606, and Contested Will, who wrote Shakespeare, Professor Shapiro is historical advisor at New York City's Public Theater, governor of the Folger Shakespeare Library, and a frequent BBC commentator. You can find him at net. Well, now that we have the exposition out of the way, it's time to fire up our time machine and get some Shakespeare in our ear with history show correspondent Stephen Bedford. He met up with Professor Shapiro in New York City's Central Park, in the very shadow of Shakespeare's statue on what we call Literary Walk. It was placed there in 1872, to mark Shakespeare's 300th birthday just a few years before.
1: Hello
3: and welcome to the History Author Show. This is Stephen Bedford doing my best Dean Carianis impression, and I am sitting here in the shadow of William Shakespeare's statue in New York Central Park with Professor James Shapiro, English professor at Columbia historical advisor on numerous productions at the Public Theater, BBC correspondent, and author of the recently released The Year of Lear Shakespeare in 1606. Thank you for joining us, Jim.
0: It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, Stephen.
3: The book is now out, and it looks beautiful, and reading it there is just so much to learn and pick up and so many sort of eureka moments. I think we should really start with the subtitle Shakespeare in 1606. There was a lot happening in 1606.
0: There was an enormous amount happening almost none of it good except perhaps for Shakespeare. (laughs) It was a year in which King James of Scotland, now King of England, tried to force Parliament and the two nations, really, to join together in one union, the very union that's now unraveling as we speak between Scotland and England. It was also a year in which plague struck, and most of all, it was the year in which England tried to regain its own footing in the aftermath of a terrific terrorist plot that was stopped at the last minute, the gunpowder plot that had been foiled on November 5th, 1605. The first half of 1606 was spent torturing, trying, executing, dismembering, and then spinning the story of this plot. And it had a profound impact on that moment. So it was exciting for me to go back and look at the plays Shakespeare was writing at this moment. He finished King Lear. It was staged at the beginning of this year. He wrote Macbeth at the height of this anxiety about the gunpowder plot and finished the year writing Antony and Cleopatra. So it took 10 years to figure out all the history and really dig deep into the plays. But for me, it was an exciting trip.
3: Yeah, I think so many... People who follow history from maybe an armchair perspective are familiar with things like the Gunpowder Plot, the religious fanaticism, the union of Great Britain, and the breakout of the plague. But we often forget that it was all happening at the same time, and even the ship set sail for Jamestown at the same time. So it was it was chaos.
0: You have that great painting of the fall of Icarus with a a farmer in the background <laughs> while this great moment is is going on, and that famous painting. And in a way, the ships sailing to found Jamestown are the small speck in the background of this year, probably passed unnoticed as they sailed up the Thames and out for the New World. So what I tried to do was tie all these together and really see them through the perspective of the theatergoer and of Shakespeare himself, who's trying to make sense of his time. You know, we're sitting here in, quite literally, in Shakespeare's shadow in Central Park, it may be the least popular statue in this long row of statues.
3: It does have Balto right across it the street does, as and well.
0: It does, Balto has a huge crowd, dogs over famous authors, dead for 400 years. <laughs> I've sat here often, and I've never seen anyone take a selfie. And as I sit here, I, I think two things. One, Shakespeare knew that statues want to come to life. In The Winter's Tale, late in his career, he actually creates a play in which a statue comes to life. Statues are inanimate and in a lot of ways history is inanimate until you come along and bring it back to life. And there's some inscription here in the granite base of this statue that doesn't animate this statue. When I look at the statue I don't see Shakespeare looking down at the squirrels and pigeons in New York. I see a story of Americans trying to wrestle with their own history in 1864, when this statue was first conceived. And there was a benefit performance of Julius Caesar by three Booth brothers, Junius Booth, his brother Edwin Booth, and his notorious brother John Wilkes Booth, to create the statue, to raise money for the statue. Four months after that benefit, John Wilkes Booth, quoting from Julius Caesar, shot Abraham Lincoln. And... It just tells you that history is so much more exciting and complicated. And the day in 1872, when this statue was finally unveiled in New York, where we're sitting was packed with hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And that, too, was contested because local poets came up and put their own placards on the statue, the police came and tore them down. This was a moment where highbrow, lowbrow Shakespeare was really dividing. So there are stories upon stories looking at an inanimate object, and it's really the role of the cultural historian to take something that seems dead to us 400 years later, in a way like King Lear or Macbeth, and animate them and try to describe the forces that helped bring them into being.
3: Such an eerie resonance too for U.S. history with the John Wilkes Booth story and of course what happened four months later and we can trace it right back to where we're sitting. History all around us from 1606 to 1864 to 2015.
0: We're still wrestling with so many of the issues that emerged in 1606. The beginning of empire and the founding of America, the relationship between the various parts of the British Isle, really how you deal with a terrorist threat. And even the model that was established back then, let no crisis Mm -hmm. go unexploited.
3: So with the gunpowder plot now, Shakespeare had some personal ties to this. A lot of the plotting and uh, conspiring was happening right around his hometown and right near properties he owned or rented or
0: lived on. This was one of the really surprising finds for me. And I have to say... I've spent a quarter of a century researching and writing about Shakespeare's life. I had no idea how proximate the uprising following the planned explosion in Parliament was to Shakespeare. The arms for the uprising was stored in a recusant's house four miles north of Shakespeare's home, on land abutting property that Shakespeare had just rented. The gunpowder plot had been devised in the months leading up to this attack. And there was a steady stream of plotters going in and out of Stratford. And in that house were stored the Catholic ritual items that were going to be used to help people worship according to Catholic rites, which had been suppressed since 1558, when Queen Elizabeth had come to the throne. Shakespeare's next-door neighbor, a man named George Badger, was quite literally the bad man. He was caught kind of like a Santa Claus figure carrying (laughs) to hide these Catholic ritual items. And there was an inquisition in February of 1606 of the leading townspeople in Stratford passing around and holding up these rituals, which were then uh, melted down or forfeited to the state. So all this was happening proximate to Shakespeare. His friends, his neighbors, even his daughter, Susanna, his eldest daughter, was caught up in the frenzy following the gunpowder plot and the political and religious legislation that followed when she was called in for refusing to attend services, Protestant services, uh, at Easter in 1606 and called in to the body as it was called, to uh, defend herself and eventually was forced to bend to the will of the uh, religious state.
3: That's just such an interesting aspect of Shakespeare's life and times that you never hear about was here's one of the most famous playwrights in history and he is really at ground zero for this terrorist plot. A lot of his friends, neighbors, acquaintances and family members are in those circles unwittingly or deliberately. That's just one of the great things of the year of Lear is you get such a different portrait of Shakespeare at a different time of life. This is a man in his early 40s. He's produced hit after hit. And uh, the life expectancy of that time was what, mid 40s, late 40s? It was. And and here he cranks out some of, uh, it's one of his most prolific
0: errors. Well, in retrospect, it is. But one of the other things that I discovered by slowing things down and looking at a year rather than the sweep of the life, is that for the Four or five years before 1606, Shakespeare had, in terms of productivity, slowed down considerably. I think he was stumbling a bit. With the shift from Elizabeth the King James, there was also a shift in the kinds of plays people were interested in. Over half of his Elizabethan plays were about succession, whether it's Titus Andronicus or Hamlet or all those English histories, he had thrilled playgoers writing about the thing they were they were most anxious about. Who was gonna follow their ruler? Was it gonna be civil war? Well, there was a peaceful succession. And all of a sudden, there are young playwrights like Ben Jonson and Marston and Middleton writing plays that are drawing playgoers away from the globe to other theaters to see edgier work. And in the years leading up to 1606, Shakespeare's writing maybe one play a year, plays we don't often flock to see today, Troilus and Cressida, Timon of Athens, even the slightly more popular Measure for Measure. In 1606, in part because it was such a bad year, in part because he finally found his footing in this Jacobean regime. Shakespeare really hits his stride again and writes three of the greatest tragedies in our language.
3: In those three plays, King Lear, Macbeth, Antony, and Cleopatra, they directly reflect the times. Is there another period in Shakespeare's career where his art so imitates life and what's happening around him and he incorporates so much into what goes on onto the stage?
0: I would say the only year that comes close is a year that I previously spent 15 years investigating, and that was the year 1599, which was an Elizabethan year. And what I wanted to do in this book was to look at the most exciting Jacobean year. And I wanted to do that for a couple of reasons, not just because these plays are like the Mount Everest and the K2 Mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of Shakespeare's canon, but also because this moment, the Jacobean moment, has been overlooked. Historians, professional historians, love Queen Elizabeth, love Henry the Eighth, love the Tudors, and they love the Civil War. So you go to a bookstore or a library, and the shelves groan with books on Queen Elizabeth or the Tudors. You turn on your TV; there are television programs on Wolf Hall and the Tudors. Mm-hmm. King James has almost dropped off the map, and yet just in terms of the creative output during his regime. In 1606, the King James Bible is being translated. Some of the greatest plays are being written. Jamestown is being founded. This is an extraordinary historical moment that historians have not been as interested in as they should be. So part of my book is as devoted to historians and those who love history as it is to those who turn to Shakespeare to understand an historical moment.
3: That Jacobean period of Shakespeare's career, as you mentioned, is almost kind of an epilogue to a lot of other popular biographies or even classroom learning. Things seem to stop around 1600, where 1606 is such a fascinating year and has two of the all-time greats and a third very good play.
0: I open up cradle-to-grave biographies of Shakespeare, those that taken from his diapers to his dotage. (laughs) You look at these books and you you turn to 1606, and most of these are fat books, five, six hundred pages. And when you open it up at 1606, there are only about 50 pages left. And you would think that there would be more interest in Shakespeare at the height of his powers. And I don't think anybody would deny that. The playwright who wrote Lear and Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra is is not at the height of his powers. But the only way to gain access to Shakespeare is through seeing him in the reflected glare of his times. Otherwise, you're just stuck speculating on whether he was sleeping with a handsome innkeeper's wife in Oxford, which is what most biographies Mm -hmm. sadly do Mm -hmm. for this year.
3: So in the Year of Lear, we also find out that Shakespeare himself was spending a lot of time in the court amongst the king and the courtiers and the rest, and this also influenced his writing, too.
0: Under Queen Elizabeth, Shakespeare's company, at the time called the Chamberlain's Men, had been brought in for the Christmas festivities two or three times a year to perform at court. They weren't paid much, a kind of nominal sum of 10 pounds. They would have made more playing at their own theater. Under King James, starting in 1603, 1604, they were called in to perform at court 10 or more times a year
3: they were almost like a house band
0: that's a great way of looking at it they were king james's house band if you will (laughs) and uh that meant coming up with a lot of fresh content for the king i mean they were able to recycle all those elizabethan hits pretty quickly they went through them so by the beginning of 1605 the guy in charge of finding new work, is running around saying, you know, I'm I'm looking for Shakespeare's company to see what they can perform at court. I'm looking for Burbage, who was one of Shakespeare's colleagues, to to see what they can do. So there's enormous pressure on Shakespeare to produce plays. And there's also an enormous opportunity for Shakespeare because King James had decided early on in his reign To choose Shakespeare's company among the various companies in London, 1603 marked a sea change in Shakespeare's relationship to the court and his access to it. Until then, for a decade under Elizabeth, he and his fellow players had come to court two, maybe three times a year to perform. Once King James had decided that Shakespeare's company would be the king's men, and Shakespeare would be a king's man. A groom of the chamber issued four yards of red cloth to stand up and be there when the king wanted actors to play any court role he wanted them to do, and he soon called on them for those roles. Shakespeare was at court a lot more than he no doubt wanted to be, and King James also expected this playing company to show up 10 or more times a year to perform at court, which was a lot. The funny thing is, King James didn't really like plays. He'd rather be out hunting. But he understood that plays were a way to enforce the kind of court culture he believed in. So Shakespeare is given extraordinary access to everything from the Spanish embassy, which in 1604 he had been asked to attend upon, to public outdoor celebrations when, in 1606, King James's brother-in-law, King Christian, came over from Scandinavia for a disastrous three-week visit. mm -hmm. Shakespeare is there on the street, soaking up what the crowd is thinking, comparing these two kings, and thinking, how can I use this in my next play?
3: And I think one of my favorite little vignettes from the year of Lear is uh, we find out that King James himself had a fascination with sort of the occult and the supernatural and that sure enough makes its way into some of Shakespeare's biggest plays at the time.
0: James was obsessed with witchcraft, he had written a treatise of it, and he was also a man who prided himself on his ability to discover fakes, fake demonic possession, fake witches and the rest. But He clearly believed in these powers and told courtier John Harrington, an author as well, exactly this and questioned him on it as well. James was also interested in what others thought about witchcraft. We have no record of conversations between Shakespeare and King James, but I would imagine after having seen Macbeth, The question of witchcraft would have figured largely (laughs) in any such conversation. and Shakespeare's writing a play that's just in the king's wheelhouse, Mm -hmm. but it's not worshipful of James. It's really taking the question of witchcraft and taking the question of the killing of a Scottish king, uh, which are two really pressing issues Mm -hmm. since... The gunpowder plot was about the killing of a Scottish king and staging them successfully. So this was both, in a sense, timeless. Our interest in the supernatural are always timeless. And there are supernatural elements in almost every one of Shakespeare's greatest tragedies, Mm -hmm. the ghost in Hamlet and the like. But this was topical. This was urgent. And this would have spoken to the moment in ways that are largely lost Mm -hmm. to us.
3: We've talked now about the anxious times of 1606 and Shakespeare's sort of a line in Winter who finds that second life. We also get a great portrait in the Year of Lear of sort of Shakespeare the guy. And there's a term uh, you came across that I'm going to borrow to describe all my future nights out with my buddies, the roistering crowd.
0: Yeah, the roistering crowd. You know, one of the, the nice things about taking a while to write a book is things turn up that you had no idea existed. When I last wrote about Shakespeare in a book on 1599, the Shakespeare that stood out for me was the one recorded by a writer named John Aubrey in the 17th century who went to Stratford-upon-Avon, asked around what kind of guy was Shakespeare to hang out with. (laughs) And he was told that Shakespeare just didn't like what we would say, didn't like to party. Mm -hmm. And when people asked him to go out, he would, just say he wasn't feeling well. We all know people like that (laughs) and sad to say that was the Shakespeare that was in my mind because that was all the historical record or the anecdotal record turned up. So it was a terrific relief for me to learn last year somebody nosing around in the archives in Scotland found a sheaf of papers that recorded from 1640 how, and this is pretty close to Shakespeare's own day, taking a tour of the Tabard Inn, that inn made famous mm-hmm. in Chaucer's Canterbury Tale, coming upon a wooden wall, discovered that Shakespeare, along with Ben Jonson and other of their roistering crowd, yeah. had cut or carved his name into the wood there. You know, they didn't have like familias pizza, portraits, photographs, signed <laughs> photographs, but it was the Jacobean equivalent. And it told you, maybe Shakespeare didn't like to go out partying with the dull crowd in Stratford, but in London, finishing the play at 5 or 6 in the afternoon, would walk a half mile or so south to the Tabard Inn, and have a good time. And, and when it, people said, you've had a couple too many, here's a penknife, cut your name in. We want people to know Shakespeare was here. He happily obliged.
3: You get out of the play at the Globe, and it is happy hour, so why not treat yourself and have a cold pint? Yeah,
0: but I wouldn't urge budding playwrights today to do that unless they can cover the expense.
3: Yeah, when you crank out the catalog Shakespeare has, then you get some leeway. I think
0: so. so. I think though, photographs or selfies is the way today. Yeah.
3: <laughs> It was such a great portrait of Shakespeare, sort of a stars, they're just like us
0: moment. And it just tells you how he was regarded. There's not a lot that survives of Shakespeare's life. And it really takes a long time to piece together these sorts of details. I can offer another one that I think would speak to those interested in history in particular. When I had already sent the finished draft of the book to Bob Bender, my terrific editor at Simon & Schuster, I got a phone call from archaeologists in London, and they said, you might be interested in this. We were down in Knoll, and we discovered in quarters built for the king, specifically built for him in 1606, that we have dug up the room, and we found on an 18-foot oak beam that had been put under the floor, these curious markings which were meant to keep away devils or evil spirits.
3: There's that occult again,
0: yeah. Uh, It's occult and it tells you how deep this ran. So here you have, at the very moment, that Shakespeare's writing Macbeth, carpenters anxious about the king sleeping in a room at the Lord Treasurer's house, carefully marking up on every foot of this 18-foot oak beam that'll never see the light of day after it's installed. All these markings that are meant to keep the devils away. And I can just imagine some of those carpenters heading up to London from their work at Knoll and seeing Macbeth and watching the witches in this play and watching... King Duncan killed in this play, and nodding with the wisdom of people who knew exactly what these demonic forces were capable of.
3: Another aspect of the Year of Lear that I had no idea about was that there actually was a King Lear book that Shakespeare's version is based upon, and it ends very differently. And I've also learned that Shakespeare, this was kind of common for him to sort of adapt or take maybe a one-line descriptor of a play, and write around it, or fill in the framework.
0: Shakespeare didn't like creating plots. Perhaps two of his plays, Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest, are the only ones where we can't point to a particular source. He much preferred taking the existing structure and doing what I would call a gut renovation of it, and rebuilding it from the inside. So in the late spring of 1605, in May of 1605, a book was entered on the stationer's register called The History of King Lear, and two months later or so, it was published and sold in London. And This is a play from 1590, it's 15 years old. Shakespeare picks it up, probably seen it once or twice, for all we know, maybe even had acted in it. and. He, as he did with Hamlet and any other number of plays, including Henry V, understood what was missing or what was wrong with this old play. And his King Lear utterly transforms it, that earlier King Lear was a play with a happy ending. (laughs) You can imagine playgoers going to the globe to see, oh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear. I I can't wait for that moment when King Lear and Cordelia are happily reunited at the end. And then Shakespeare gives them the darkest moment in any of his plays. Enter King Lear with Cordelia in his arm. I mean, people must have been looking at each other in the galleries and in uh, standing in the pit saying, what is going on? And this is more than anything else, as Shakespeare understood, a play that spoke to his very dark times, mm-hmm. not to that upbeat 1590 moment in the aftermath of the victory of the Spanish Armada.
3: Yeah, the the version of King Lear that we all know, uh, after you watch it or you've closed that last page, you, you kind of need a, a stiff drink and a walk around the block, where the original version, uh, you
0: maybe want to go out for ice cream or something. <laughs> It's like watching characters in a favorite novel hit by a truck at the end. (laughs) And he knew exactly what he was doing. And uh, it's an extraordinary act of revision. He does much the same at the end of the year, taking Plutarch's Life of Anthony and Cleopatra, where Plutarch really trashes the two for their moral failings, and he makes them into an heroic, tragic couple. Mm -hmm. So again and again, Shakespeare's taking a really established, well-known work, and turning it this year on its head. Mm-hmm.
3: And there's another little snippet in The Year of Lear. Speaking to this point, it doesn't pertain to King Lear, Macbeth, or Antony and Cleopatra, which are the focus of the book, but there's that line in Hamlet about the crow that he sort of heard from a a, a lesser play group let's say. An old say. Men play. <laughs> he made a, a mental note of that and said you know that the, the idea is right just the syntax the wording is wrong but I'm going to file that away and, and he did and it comes out in Hamlet I believe. You yeah. know
0: you probably didn't want to cross Shakespeare because he had the kind of retentive memory where he could pick up a couplet from a play that's 15 or 20 years old and nail it in another play turn it inside out That is the kind of Shakespeare that I try to tease out in the year of Lear, a man who understands how things change, how his culture changes, and how he, as a playwright, if he wants to fill the theater with 2,500 people, has to speak to their fears, Mm -hmm. to their anxieties, to their hopes. And those are the kind of plays he writes this year.
3: Now to switch gears a little bit off mic, you and I discussed how you became such a Shakespeare fan and have really devoted a a life and career to it. And it wasn't really love at first read in the classroom, but it was love at first sight in a sense, correct?
0: I hated Shakespeare when I was exposed to it in junior high school and then high school in Brooklyn. I think we read Romeo and Juliet I didn't get it. I didn't understand why everybody thought Shakespeare was so great. I didn't even get the dirty bits that (laughs) the other kids in the class were laughing at. I never took a Shakespeare course in college. And my own uh, relationship to Shakespeare is really based on having held down a lousy job every summer in New York for June and July, and then in August as a late teenager and in my early 20s going to England, sleeping in church basements or youth hostels, and seeing a play a day, every day, twice on matinee days, 15 or 20 or 25 Shakespeare plays in that month of August. And after five or six or seven years, I'd seen several hundred Shakespeare plays, and I just had a knack for them, and these were extraordinary productions. And you could get in to see a play for a buck or two and fly over to London round trip for 200 bucks from New York. So I was very lucky at that moment. So my experience of Shakespeare is really much closer to a playgoer's than to somebody who reads it in a classroom. And for that reason, I always think of Shakespeare as a collective experience. Mm -hmm. And when I write books, I'm really writing for those Not just who loved Shakespeare, but even more those who were in a situation like the one I was in, turned off to it. And my work really tries to animate Shakespeare, to bring that dead statue alive, to make it move, to make people feel what was at stake for him as a writer, for his culture, for the thousands of people gathered to make Mm -hmm. sense of their world through the experience of one of his great plays.
3: So it was almost a non-academic approach for you that really pushed you over the edge. It's
0: completely non-academic, and I think that I don't write my books for academics. I teach from as non-academic a perspective. I make my students at Columbia get up Mm -hmm. and act out scenes. I advise productions. We're in Central Park where we just finished a terrific season for the public theater. Mm -hmm. I had a chance to work closely on those productions. I'm on the board of the Royal Shakespeare Company and get to work with their productions as well. So I think I'm very lucky in that I am self-taught largely or taught by mm-hmm. productions of plays rather than a single great mind shaping the way I understand Shakespeare in his age.
3: Yeah, because these are plays that are meant to be acted out. They're not meant to be read at a, a little cubicle desk. You also had a funny aside about not just making students at Columbia get up and act it out and get into character, but also you taught some fourth graders recently.
0: I teach at every level. I love teaching fourth graders. I love going to Rikers with the mobile Shakespeare unit and speaking with inmates there. So fourth graders are tough. There was a few years back where I spoke with a fourth grader working on Shakespeare sonnets and the kid had said to me, "My." My brother had told me that Shakespeare didn't write Romeo and Juliet. Uh oh! That's what I was thinking. God, it's it's come down to this. And uh, <laughs> Simon and Schuster helped me uh, publish a book called Contested Will: mm-hmm. Who Wrote Shakespeare? In which. I gave the teacher of that kid the ammunition to respond to that. But I have to say, in the aftermath of that book, I've gotten a gazillion letters from those who still don't believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. including a former Supreme Court justice. So that book still has legs. And of course, writing a book about Shakespeare in 1606 in the kind of detailed way that the Year of Lear sets out gives more evidence, if evidence were needed, which it's not that Shakespeare of Stratford did indeed write these yeah, plays. It
3: wasn't a, a artist collective uh, writing under one name or something like that. No, so.
0: nor uh, Christopher Marlowe or an Earl of Oxford, both long dead before 1606.
3: Mm-hmm. And of course, the secret is found out, and we should share with all the listeners, the secret to teaching Shakespeare... At the elementary level, give everyone a prop, correct?
0: Uh, You give everybody a sword. It's not (laughs) just a prop. Make sure they're wooden and make sure there are no points. But I'm keenly interested in taking Shakespeare out of elite culture and Mm -hmm. bringing him to as many people in as many walks of life and as many nations around the globe as possible. Because while these plays were forged in their moment, their lessons are still with us. Mm -hmm. And when I'm struggling to understand America today and questions of belonging and immigration or questions of political threats to leaders or all the things that Shakespeare was wrestling with in plays like Anthony and Macbeth and Lear, uh, I find terrific value in them. King Lear now, when we see it staged, is more often a play about... Alzheimer's and mm-hmm. an old king struggling mm-hmm. with his memory than it is, say, about the issues that first mattered to Jacobean audiences. But you have to understand today's Shakespeare by going back to how it has changed in the course of those four hundred years and I talk a little bit about that in the Year of Lear as well.
3: Yeah, the the times of sixteen oh six that you delve into in the Year of Lear are not too distant from our current day 2015 well I
0: wish they weren't I wish there was a time when people went to see Shakespeare and said you know we live in such a peaceful get along age what what must have been like to live in such contested times We live in contested times, and as we approach a political election that's going to have a profound impact on the future of the United States, I look to a play like Antony and Cleopatra where two leaders are compared, mm-hmm. Octavius and Antony, mm-hmm. and even as Shakespeare's audiences were looking at King Christian and King James in late summer of 1606 and comparing styles of rule and effectiveness of rule, we go through that same process today. So. I think the plays still speak to us. Sometimes I wish they didn't speak so powerfully.
3: The Year of Lear out now is being published right on the verge of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, and there is actually a a pretty cool state-by-state thing going on, a traveling show, if you will, produced by the Folger that you're going to be involved in as well.
0: I'm uh, one of the governors of the Folger Shakespeare Library and can tell you that we have been working towards 2016 for years and very excited about, if you will, spreading the word. This statue we are sitting under celebrated the 300th anniversary, the birth of Shakespeare. These anniversaries are really moments when Shakespeare comes into the public in ways that he hasn't for uh, a long time. And in this year, there's going to be uh, a celebration, a month-long celebration, in each of the 50 states. The Folger Shakespeare Library has 82 or so first folios, these incredibly valuable books published in 1623 containing 36 of Shakespeare's plays. They're sending them throughout the land. They're going to be uh, in, here in New York, they're going to be in California, North Dakota, Texas, Florida, everywhere. And there are going to be productions and celebrations and performances. And uh, it's going to be a year that's going to help us, not just nationally I think, but internationally, understand uh, who and what Shakespeare was and what mm-hmm. his plays still mean. And I'm hoping that the Year of Lear will, will contribute to that conversation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a supplement and a complement to Shakespeare teaching and reading, whether it's at the academic level or the armchair level for years to come. And for more information on the traveling Folger uh, folios, visit Folger Library's website. And I guess at this juncture, we will drop the curtain on this episode of the History Author Show with uh, Professor Jim Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us in The Year of Lear. Really just a fascinating book. Shakespeare fan or not, you're going to learn a lot about Great Britain's history, about Shakespeare, and it's really going to resonate to our current day. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Now let's go find our roistering crowd and be on with the day.
0: I'm getting my knife to cut with.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you again, Jim, for joining us.
2: Again, the title of the book is The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606. And you might also check out Contested Will, Who Wrote Shakespeare? If you purchase either book, or both, please click through the Amazon link at historyauthor.com. We get a few English crowns every time you do. As I listened to Stephen and Professor Shapiro talk, I couldn't help but wish all our teachers were as dedicated to breathing life into statues as he is not to mention all our history authors. Can you imagine embracing the challenge of teaching fourth graders about Shakespearean plays and the wooden swords? What a great way to get them interested. You can learn more about Professor Shapiro and his works at jamesshapiro.net And let us know what you think of the book on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash author. I'd also recommend following the Central Park Conservancy at Central Park NYC on Twitter to learn more about the sites and features of Central Park that you may miss in your average rom-com. The Central Park Conservancy is a private nonprofit that raises 75% of the park's $65 million annual budget. So we have a place to get out there and leave the studio when we want to hang out with the bard. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the History Author Show and I guess it's back to the present. Thank you again, Professor Shapiro and correspondent Stephen Bedford for talking, and thank you all for listening. So until next Monday morning, parting is such sweet sorrow, but we bid you farewell, and happy reading.
1: We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
3: Pass right by Shakespeare and all they want to talk about is Balta.